Hello, and welcome to the Accountability Coach Podcast, where we discuss proven business success principles related to helping you make more money and work less so you can enjoy having your ideal business and your ideal life. This is Ann Backrack. Today we have a special guest with us who is going to share her very valuable knowledge to help you learn more about being as healthy as possible overall so you can achieve the goals that you set for your business and in your life. Andrea Nicholson is a board-certified holistic nutritionist, nutrition therapist, master, and restorative wellness practitioner. In her previous life as a forensic scientist and crime lab manager, which I thought was pretty cool, she learned a very valuable skill, how to identify and follow the evidence to solve mysteries and people are glad she is applying this very valuable skill to help them. Using over a decade of experience in the health industry, Andrea creates personalized packages using functional testing and other cutting edge technologies to give people confidence in achieving and maintaining improved health so they can always get the results they personally want. Welcome, Andrea. We really appreciate you joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. As you probably know, I like to get right into things. So generally speaking, what are some common myths and misconceptions in the health industry that we may not know? You know, I think there's a lot of myths and misconceptions. And one of the biggest ones is just that it's a simplified, you know, we can follow just general basic advice that there's one perfect plan for everyone and all we need to do is just stick with this perfect plan. I think that's really a misconception because we're all unique individuals. We all have specific foods that are good for us and we have foods that are not great for us, even incredibly healthy foods don't always work for every single person. Some of us do really well with higher fat content. Some don't do so well with higher fat content. Same thing with protein, same thing with carbohydrates. So I think that's one of the main myth misconceptions when it comes to the, the food scenario. But I think the same thing actually applies in all aspects of our lifestyle. You know, some people thrive on endurance exercise. Others do better in sprinting or powerlifting kind of types of activities. So I think we really need to get out of seeking this generic, generalized advice and really figure out what's right for each individual person, what makes you feel the best, what you enjoy doing. I think we just really need to get out of this general kind of advice model. I couldn't agree with you more because, I mean, I've had a lot of blood tests over the years. I've had a lot of tests over the years, but <laughs> um, I've, uh, I've noticed that you're right. Some healthy foods in general, like some people can eat and some can't. And at one time I could eat certain foods and then all of a sudden I couldn't. My body didn't like it. And I didn't have any way to know that without, you know, doing some, you know, pretty extensive testing. So I can't agree with you enough that generic advice is not for everybody, not probably for anybody, as a matter of fact, because we are all unique individuals. So I think that's a super, super good point. Now. Give us some perspective. What's the difference between, let's just call it conventional medical testing versus functional testing? Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap. You know, a lot of the same tests can be used in under both models. But in general, functional testing takes it a step further. 
One of the other major differences is, is the data we're trying to glean from these tests. So conventional medical testing primarily is being used for diagnostic purposes. They're trying to decide if you say have diabetes or if you have you know, some medical conditions they can diagnose you with. Functional testing is really looking for any level of imbalance and under the auspice of trying to bring you back into optimal. Conventional testing is looking at reference ranges, which those reference ranges that you'll see on your lab reports are based on the average population of people who've undergone that test. But if you think about it, most people are undergoing testing with their doctor because they have a problem. So they're already sick and that's what we're being compared against. I don't know about you, but that's not what I wanna be compared against. I don't wanna be the average of sick people. I wanna be optimal. And so the difference with functional testing is even on the exact same lab report, we're looking at different ranges. We're looking at a much narrower picture of where people are actually optimally healthy. So they're actually creating the optimal ranges from optimally healthy people. And that's the range we're trying to get you into. So I think there's, there's kind of a difference. Some testing is not even offered in the conventional model because it, the results can't lead to a diagnosis or a treatment. And so they won't even run it if it doesn't do one of those two things. So there's additional testing done through functional practitioners, but then we're also really looking at the different ranges and trying to get you into the optimal range, not just the average range. Yeah, who wants to be average, Andrea? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a good point as well. Now, let's say that I want to be, I wanna go through some more testing because I feel a certain way and the conventional way isn't doing it, who would I look for? What would I ask for? How would I get that done? Yeah, in general, you're gonna look for someone who their title will generally say something like holistic or functional or integrative. Generally speaking, those are gonna be more the titles of the practitioners that you're gonna work for. Generally, these are not going to go through insurance models. So you might find a naturopathic doctor or a functional medicine doctor or some nurse practitioners. There's nutritionists and dietitians who also can do this. There's lots of different professionals who are able to either run this testing for you or take testing that you've had done and analyze it through the functional lens and try to get you into those optimal ranges. Now the functional testing in general is gonna give far more detail. It's going to be much deeper, look at a whole lot more markers, but you, we can use the conventional medical testing to glean some information. So if that's what you have and you're not satisfied with the information that your doctor is telling you, like he keeps telling you that you're fine, you're normal, and you don't feel good, you can often glean additional information from someone who's functionally trained to interpret those lab test results against optimal and then that may warrant additional testing or it may give you the answers that you need and therefore the protocol that will help fix it. And I wouldn't say 100% some of these things are not covered by insurance because if you go to an integrative or functional medicine or some of these other people that you mentioned, a lot of times your insurance will cover like the, in, the blood work or things like that that can be done. Absolutely. 
yeah. yeah. So I don't want people to think that, hey, 100%, this isn't covered by right. insurance. There's yeah, a lot of things sure. that are, but there's some things that definitely are not. I yes. totally agree with that. But it comes down to, you know, your personal health. What's more important? Uh, nothing. So, you know, you want to find the best person to definitely help you. So give me some perspective. Let's just say we're talking about uh, checking for heavy metals, right, which we all have some amounts of metals and things that, I mean, I just found out a few years ago that white rice has arsenic in it because I'm yeah. like, where would we get arsenic from? And most people probably don't know that. So if we're right. doing a, a bunch of metals testing, is like a blood test sufficient or is a urine test better or what do you recommend? Yeah, a lot of times it, it again depends on what you're dealing with. That's probably not going to be a level one kind of test. When you get to the level of testing for heavy metals and things, you've kind of gone down this path already. You've done some gut work, you've done some hormone stuff, you've done lots of other things. But when you do get to that level, a lot of times urine seems to be a good way to discern that. But, you know, there is no one perfect test because some of these metals specifically really get buried into our tissues. And so it can be really difficult to fully identify, you know, what's actually trapped in your tissues. That's not necessarily going to come out in your urine. It's not necessarily going to show up on a blood test. So there, it really depends on the client. There's a wide range of different options out there. And so sometimes we have to just really look at the client, what they've already done, what we know, what their symptoms are, all of those kinds of things, and then pick the appropriate direction to go as far as what kind of testing or um, what kind of protocol we might recommend based on what we believe they they have been exposed to. Okay, that sounds good. Now, why would we focus on blood sugar or insulin if we haven't been diagnosed with diabetes? Would there be some reason why we would do that? Yeah, this one is a really interesting one. And the main reason I like to really focus on this is high blood sugars, first of all, are very common. Doesn't make them normal, doesn't make them optimal, but they are very common in our modern diets and our modern lifestyles. And they don't give any symptoms. So outside of testing, you would never really know that you have elevated blood sugars or elevated insulin. But these are the precursors to becoming diabetic. So why would you want to wait until you have full-blown diabetes if you could catch these earlier? And when we do this functional testing, we're looking at fasting insulin, blood sugar levels, and hemoglobin A1C, as well as a whole bunch of other markers that feed into how well we're managing our blood sugars, how elevated they are on a regular basis. And if we can catch these trends much earlier, it's a whole lot easier to stop it than it is to reverse it once you've got the full diagnosis. So I think this is one of those things that testing is so valuable because there's no symptom. You wouldn't know overtly that you have a blood sugar problem or an insulin problem outside of testing. And it really is super common. There's, there's probably millions of people walking around who have elevated blood sugars and insulin levels and they don't know it because their doctors aren't running these tests. They aren't looking for this stuff and nobody knows. But this is the progression of all of the metabolic diseases. This puts you at greater risk for cancers, for heart disease, for cognitive decline and all of the mental health disorders. It puts you at great risk, obviously, for diabetes, but so much more. Blood sugar is foundational and insulin is foundational 
to really every other chronic disease. And so we need this valuable information and the earlier the better. So if we wanted to be proactive, which I'm hoping most people would want to be, especially in this area, what would we go to our doctor and ask for? Say, hey, you know, I want you to check this, for example. What would we be asking for? On blood sugar specifically, I would ask for a fasting glucose. So meaning that you haven't eaten anything before the blood draw. You would also would like to get a hemoglobin A1C. Those two are pretty standard that most doctors will order. The one that a lot of them will not order is a fasting insulin. And this one I think is so vital because that's the one that will get out of range first. This is the one that kind of like we know when you, when you think about somebody using an illicit drug that they have to take more and more and more to get the same effect as you know they had at the beginning when they first started using the drug. Insulin's kind of the same way. The body becomes, as it becomes more resistant to this hormone, it produces more and more and more to keep your blood sugars in check. And so insulin will rise far faster than blood sugar or hemoglobin A1C will. And so this is one of those key pieces that if we can identify an elevated fasting insulin, we can get in, we can target that and fix it long before you end up with elevated blood sugars and elevated A1C and all of the other diabetes markers. So we really do need fasting glucose, hemoglobin A1C, and fasting insulin at a minimum when it comes to blood sugar and insulin. Okay. I've heard the term insulin resistant before. Can you elaborate a little bit on what that would mean? Because I think it correlates to what you're talking about, right? Yeah. So insulin resistance is where the body has become less sensitive or less responsive to the hormone insulin. And so the body's producing adequate amounts of it, but the cells aren't taking it up. They're not responding to it. And so the body starts knocking louder by producing even more of it. So it just kind of by chance, the body will start using some of it just because there's so much more present. And so we become more and more resistant to it, which raises the amount we need to be able to do the same job. But insulin is a growth hormone. This is a fat storage hormone. And when it's present in high levels, it's blocking your body's ability to burn body fat. And it's causing a lot of other kind of metabolic dysfunctions when it's elevated. It blocks a bunch of other hormone pathways. It just kind of causes a lot of problems when you have elevated insulin. And when you pair this with you know, eating frequently, following the standard advice of eat every couple of hours and constantly be snacking, that means your, your insulin levels never really come back down because you get an insulin spike with everything you eat or drink. Even if it's non, no calories, even if it's like a diet soda, you still get an insulin spike because your brain is perceiving, you know, calories, flavors, those kinds of things. Even if there isn't any actual caloric value, your brain is perceiving that it's taking in sugar because of the sweeteners or it's got, you know, flavors and chemicals and things in it. And so our blood sugars never or our insulin levels never come back down to baseline when we're constantly stimulating this system. And so they stay elevated and they just keep climbing and climbing and climbing. And the body it's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. You know, the more you scream out when you don't really need help, people stop listening when you do need help. It's the same sort of thing. So the body's producing more and more and more insulin to try to deal with those blood sugar levels. 
because high blood sugar is toxic and it, you eventually just become more and more resistant to it. And that's when eventually you can't even regulate the blood sugars anymore. And then the blood sugars and the hemoglobin A1C start to rise. So you talked about the insulin resistance as being basically storing fat. Is this where people might tend to store more like visceral fat versus regular fat? Does that have any indication or correlation? It definitely can. Insulin is it's a growth hormone. So anywhere it attaches, if it's attaching to a fat cell, it'll make that fat cell grow bigger. If it attaches to a liver cell, it can turn to more fat production in the liver and you can end up with fatty liver. It can show up on the pancreas and turn into fatty pancreas. It absolutely can show up in any tissue. We end up with more fat in our muscles. Really anywhere insulin is present, it can stimulate this fat storage and production and block the fat breakdown for energy use. And so it can contribute directly to kind of the visceral fat or the central obesity, but it can also contribute to just increased fat deposition throughout the body. Which is not healthy, as we all right. know. <laughs> okay. And how might someone know that they have gut health issues if there really aren't any real symptoms that they can feel? Yeah, so a lot of people, you know, you know you have a gut health issue if you have those overt digestive symptoms. If you're constipated, you have diarrhea, bloating, gas, abdominal pain, heartburn. Those are all signs that are pretty obvious that you have a gut health imbalance. But really, if you look at your overall health, if you have any health condition, there's a gut health component. The gut is foundational to everything. This is where we take in our nutrients. This is where we eliminate our waste products. This is where we eliminate our toxins, the bulk of them. So this really is foundational to everything. So even if you have, say, joint pain, it doesn't directly seem to correlate with the gut. It absolutely could. It could be because you have a particular pathogen that's maybe sending out toxins that are attacking your joints. Could be that you're consuming foods that you're sensitive to, and that's contributing to inflammation that might show up in your joints. It could be you know, just your diet in general is contributing to overall inflammation because you're eating, you know, refined foods or high toxin foods, those kinds of things. So the gut intimately is involved in every other health condition there is. If you have migraines, if you have cancer, if you have an autoimmune condition, it doesn't matter what your condition is. There is a gut health component. And until you deal with the gut health component and get your digestive system working properly, you won't be able to fix the other issues. Now, that's not to say that fixing the gut will always 100% fix all the other issues. A lot of times it does, but not always. You just will not be able to solve it until you deal with the gut health piece. So I think what I'm hearing you say is really just pay attention more to how you feel in general. Yeah, absolutely. Because it could impact just joint aching or joints ache or just something that you wouldn't necessarily consider coming from the gut. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Who should consider something like a metabolic health reset or who should focus on that? You know, I would say everyone really does need to focus on metabolic health. And let me back up a little bit by explaining what that even means, because I think that sounds like a very sciencey term that people might not know what that means. So we all know about metabolism, or at least we were familiar with that term. But what most people think metabolism is, is simply how many calories you're burning every day. It's the whole calories in, calories out model. 
But metabolism really is so much more than that. It's all of the chemical reactions occurring in our bodies. So it's making hormones, breaking down hormones, synthesizing energy, making new tissues, digesting our food. It's all of the things happening in our bodies. And so just like we were talking about with gut health, that that's foundational to everything, your metabolic function is all of those things happening in your body. So if you're not making hormones appropriately or not eliminating them properly, and therefore maybe you have estrogen dominance or really high levels of particular hormones, or you're totally depleted in a particular hormone, that could be a metabolic issue. Diabetes, blood sugar issues, those are directly metabolic issues. If you're struggling with fatigue or low energy, that's directly related to how efficiently you're making and using energy. That's part of your metabolic health. If you have brain health challenges, a lot of times that's because the brain isn't efficiently using energy properly. That's a metabolic health problem. Cancer is a metabolic process. That's, you know, it's utilizing specific energy sources to grow the cancer really fast. Those are metabolic conditions. So really, again, just like with gut health, if you have any health challenge at all, you probably need a metabolic health reset. You need to look at how your metabolic health is working. And how would we ask for that? If we go to our, let's just say our regular doctor, can we ask them for that? What would we ask for? Yeah, I think a lot of that is going to come from this more functional style of testing. So the really detailed panels where we are getting a good look at the insulin levels. That's a big driver in how well your metabolic processes are going. If you have elevated insulin, you for sure have metabolic dysfunction. If you have any digestive dysfunctions, you're going to have metabolic dysfunction because you're not properly utilizing the nutrients that you're taking in or you're not properly eliminating the toxins that are interfering with the metabolic processes. So for sure, if you have any like overt health challenge, you have a metabolic system or a metabolic dysfunction going on in your system. So the functional testing is going to give us a lot of those markers that point to where your body is not operating optimally. I think the blood the comprehensive blood testing is paramount in this because you just get an overview of where your body's at. You know, how's your cardiovascular system? How's your liver? How's your thyroid? How's your immune system? Your kidneys gives us a great overview of what's going on in your body. And then I like to pair it with a gut health test because that's telling us specifically how your digestive system is actually operating. Do you have the bacteria that you need? Our bacteria do so much more than just eat some of the food that we take in. They also help us eliminate the toxins. They also synthesize vitamins and nutrients that we need. They actually make a lot of our neurotransmitters. A lot of this stuff happens in our gut that we need for brain health, for energy, for you know all these processes. And so I think gathering this information from the more functional lens is really valuable to know how your metabolism is functioning. If, you, if you're overweight, if you have any kind of health issue, you already know that you have some level of metabolic dysfunction happening. It's just a matter of figuring out where that is and what you know the repair mechanism is for your particular situation. Good point, very good point. Let's change up just a little bit. So getting enough sleep is important, as we all know. And most people go through life sleep deprived, according to any expert I've ever talked to or heard from. So how does sleep actually play a role in our day-to-day -day productivity and success outcomes? What are your thoughts on that? 
You know, I, I would 100% agree. Sleep is absolutely vital to living an optimally healthy life. And the vast majority of us are not getting adequate amounts or quality of sleep. And I think this plays directly into, you know, the food cravings that you're going to have how hungry you actually are. Generally, if you're sleep deprived, you're going to care. You will not care much about your food choices. You'll have way more cravings. You'll have low inhibition. So you'll eat whatever's in front of you. Like all the things go sideways when we're sleep deprived. So that alone, you know, if you're eating all day long, you're not focused as much. Your, your brain just doesn't operate as well. So you can't concentrate. You forget things. You get lost in your train of thought more easily. And all of those little pieces are contributing to not being as productive, to not feeling as successful, to not having the confidence in the choices that you're making every single day. And it makes it that much harder to actually follow the plan that you had in place. It's just, it's so much easier to cave to the cravings and the, the fast foods and all of those things when we're in that sleep deprived role. So I think we really do need to get back to prioritizing sleep just like we would an appointment on our calendar. We really have to make it a top priority. I couldn't agree with you more. I even have the aura ring to really help me determine how much sleep I'm actually getting and the quality of my sleep that I'm actually getting. So I think it's more important than I think a lot of us realize uh, and how it impacts us every day with our productivity. What are some tips that you can share for helping us to improve our overall quality of sleep? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think a big part of it is having really good sleep habits. You know, the studies have shown that we get our best, most regenerative sleep between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. But how many of us are staying up until midnight or one o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning and then sleeping until 10 a.m.? That's not the optimal window of time for our circadian rhythm. That's not when we as a species are designed to be sleeping or awake. We should be sleeping during the dark hours and awake during daylight hours. So I think having those really good habits as much as we can control them, obviously if you work night shift or you have things in your life that prevent you from doing that, you know, we have to do what we have to do, but to the extent that we can control it, you know, going to bed at a good hour, sleeping mostly during the night, hours when the, the sun is not up, really having good habits around sleep, you know, relaxing before we go to bed, turning off electronic devices and stimulating light sources, really just being in a calm state when we go to bed, having a cool, dark, quiet space. All of these things really do play into how well we, you know, how the quality of sleep that we're going to get, how well we relax, how quickly we fall asleep, how well we stay asleep. So I think really prioritizing the schedule and then those habits around the sleep hours really makes a big difference. And the more we can be consistent with it, keep the same schedule seven days a week all the time, the easier all of that becomes instead of staying up later and getting up later, like on the weekends or on days off. If we can keep it more consistent, that really helps as well. You know, I've always heard and I'm sure everybody's always heard, hey, I'm a morning person. I'm a night person, blah, blah, blah around that. Right. How is it that we could maybe train ourselves and or I don't even know if it's possible that we train ourselves to be more consistent by following the you know circadian rhythm in our system? How, how would we do that? You know, I do think there are differences in people. There have been plenty of studies that have show people really there are differences. There are people who do better 
later in the day. There are people who do better earlier in the day. And I think, you know, some of that's genetic, some of that's, you know, lots of other factors that play in. I do think there's some variation in what's optimal for each person, just like it is with diet and exercise and everything else. But I do also believe that if we really prioritize an overall healthy life, we're eating a quality diet, we're getting adequate exercise, we're having appropriate downtime where, like, you know, like we, we think resting is sitting in front of the TV, but that's not even very good restful activity. That's really stimulating. I find it fascinating. I was wearing a continuous glucose monitor a while back, which measures your blood sugars all the time, 24 hours a day for two weeks. And just watching a suspenseful TV show, my blood sugar shot through the roof. I wasn't eating anything. I hadn't eaten anything in a couple hours, had absolutely nothing to do with anything I took into my body. But the stress of watching a suspenseful TV show raised my blood sugar. It caused a cortisol spike, which released blood sugar. Because my body doesn't know the difference between real and perceived stress. So I'm watching this you know, scary thing happen on TV and my brain, my primitive brain thinks I'm the one in that situation. And so I get this cortisol spike and then this blood sugar rush so that I can run away or I can fight off this attacker. But I'm sitting on the couch. I don't need that blood sugar, but I don't have any control over that. That's our primal system kicking in for survival. And so I think we have to kind of take all of these things into account and create the best possible habits around our eating, our exercise, our downtime, our stress reduction and management techniques so that we can create healthy routines. Now, I'm not saying we should never watch suspenseful TV. That's not it. But just know that that may not be as restful as you think it is. And so there, there can be chemical reactions occurring because of some of these things that we do in our lives. And we need to make sure that we're meditating or stretching or journaling or doing some other true downtime activities that can bring down some of those levels. And all of that can contribute to finding that sweet spot for your routine just by kind of honing in on your specific habits. Other than food choices, sleep, exercise, you mentioned cortisol or stress levels. What else could be preventing us from reaching our goals? Any thoughts on that? You know, I think a lot of it is our mindset. You know, we have to really believe in what we're doing. We have to really enjoy the choices we're making. And I know that sounds really kind of simple and fluffy. You know, we have to enjoy our healthy foods and we have to enjoy exercise, but it really does make a difference. If you hate it, you're going to get far less benefit out of it. So we have to find things that we actually enjoy. We have to also include things in our daily lives that bring us joy, whether that's crafts or activities or painting or I don't care what it is. We have to do more every single day that bring us joy. So I think we so often just kind of go through life, going through life. You know, we work, we go out, we socialize, we do all these things but we're kind of mindless with most of our activities. We're just going through life. And I think if we can be more intentional with doing things that are really good for us, that we know serve us, that we serve, that serve our future best self, that bring us joy, that help us live our best lives, the more we can really intentionally do those things, the overall health benefits are just tremendous. And so I think we have to just start being 
more mindful and less mindless with our daily activities. I like that. I like that a lot. Being intentional. And you've heard people talk about, you know, laughter and how laughter, just laughing at something has a positive impact on our overall well-being, right? So yeah. it joy and laughter really go hand in hand. If you could pick, <laughs> I know this might be hard, one important single, simple, doable message that is important for us to know, what would that be? Well, I'll give you, I'll cheat a little and give you two. Number one, I'll say, if you do not feel like you are feeling your best, if you feel like, you know, your doctor's telling you everything's normal or you just haven't gotten the answers that you're looking for, I'll say, be your own advocate. Keep searching, keep asking questions, keep demanding different answers. You know your body better than anybody else. So definitely do that. And the second thing I'll say is just, you know, when you look at your overall life and your overall health, pick something to start with. Clean up your diet, add a different vegetable or, you know, make some kind of change to your diet. Try a different workout. Try sleeping at a different time. You know, just pick something and start. And you can layer in additional changes over time, but just pick something. And that could be the easiest thing for you to take on. It could be the thing that you think is going to make the biggest difference in your life. Just pick something. Start somewhere. Very, very good advice. Hey, I appreciate you sharing your very valuable time with us. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. We talked about a lot of different topics. We sure did. And I enjoyed and took a lot of notes as well. <laughs> awesome. Well, my hope for our time together with Andrea is that you got value and an idea or two that will help you be even more successful personally and professionally. Feel free to share my podcast with others as it can be found on most podcast platforms and in most English speaking countries. And if you'd like to get a short daily fix from me, subscribe to the Accountability Minute, which can also be found on most podcast platforms and in most English speaking countries. And if you'd like more from me, subscribe to my proven business success resources and tips blog by going to accountabilitycoach.com forward slash blog and always aim for what you want each and every single day. Until next time, make it a great day today and every day. I appreciate you listening.